going to be leading us through our contemplative time this morning. And um, I'm just going to ask you to note that the passage that we have today says, blessed are the persecuted. And there are no caveats on who that is. We're not just talking about Christians this morning. Uh, we are talking about anyone who is persecuted. So Syrians have been under persecution since 2011. The Rohingyas in Myanmar have been persecuted for decades. There are more than a million Uyghurs in China being held captive by the Chinese government in concentration camps. The Palestinians, both Christian and Muslim, have been persecuted for a very long time. There are, are, <clears throat> there are entire generations of families that are slaves in brick factories in Pakistan that will never pay off the tiny debts that got them there. Refugees around the world flee persecution and then often face it in the new place that they land. I don't wanna overwhelm you with too long of a list. We're all suffering to some extent these days with this COVID culture, and I don't want to overwhelm you. What I would like to do this morning is find a healthy way for us to connect with those who are persecuted in the world. And I'm not talking about those of us who are being asked to wear a mask. That does not count as persecution. I would like to do the burden bearing exercise with you this morning in a way that encourages us to pray for those who are persecuted without leaving us uh, devastated by the sheer volume of the people who come under that banner. If you listen to the news at all, you will consistently hear versions of persecution being reported. And I want you to I want to teach you how to hear that news without being weighed down by it, but also not just ignoring it or stuffing it and the pain of it down inside of you. So let's start. First and foremost, you want to have a meeting place with Jesus because that is the context for this dialogue. So where would you like to meet with Jesus today? See that place with the eyes of your heart and look around in it and find Jesus there. Let's ask Jesus to give us a symbol for persecution. It could be anything, but it may look like um, a rock for throwing or the cross or a jail cell, but let Jesus show you that symbol. Now in your meeting place there with Jesus, can you pick up that symbol and just Feel the weight of that for a moment. And as you hold that symbol, say a prayer for the persecuted. 
My favorite is Lord Have Mercy. And as you pray, hand that symbol to Jesus. Now watch what he does with that symbol and allow yourself to be consoled in that place. You can use this symbol in the meeting place with Jesus anytime you become overwhelmed or weighed down by those who are persecuted. And you may want to find that same symbol in real life and put it somewhere that will remind you to continue to pray for the persecuted. Jesus, we pray for those in our world that are persecuted for any reason. We ask that you would indeed, that they would indeed know that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We pray for peace. We pray for light. We pray for allies. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen. I have the privilege, can you hear me? Of introducing Saskia Wishart, who's gonna be uh, sharing with us what she's doing and uh, just on the preach today. So we're really excited to hear her. She's not in person. She'll be on a recorded um, video as she is, she and Cor, her husband live in Indonesia at the moment. So uh, the last time we would have all seen her uh, was when she was in Greece on the island of Lesbos, where she was um, helping out with Phoenix Aid uh, at the Moria camp, the refugee camp um, in on this island. And uh, and then if you'll remember, we've been we've been kind of giving you a, a link to where uh, this camp has been burned down and there's displaced, like 22,000 people displaced. It's, it's horrendous. Anyway, so Saskia has been a, she is a peacemaker, an ally, an activist. She's a lawyer. She uh, has been advocating for human rights uh, wherever there have been, wherever she's found her place. Um, where people are suffering under exploitation. And um, she grew up in mission. Um, she has, she joined the bridge when she was 18. So that's when we met her um, before moving overseas. So uh, we, we've known Saskia for years and um, we've watched her as she's, uh, she, kind of, um, what, what would you say? She, she cut her teeth on uh, going to South Africa and advocating for women in the sex 
trafficking trade uh, industry and um, for freeing them, literally freeing them from warehouses. And um, she, uh, and she's a bold woman. And, um, and then she went to Amsterdam where she was uh, working amongst the, the women in the, or the, uh, yeah, people in the sex trafficking in the red light district and uh, advocating for them. And then she, um, she got her law degree so that she could be part of uh, making policies with international law. So she has uh, her international law degree and a master's in criminal law. And uh, so she's been working uh, in missions and with nonprofit organizations, working alongside women who have experienced human trafficking, sexual violence, and supporting refugees and migrants. And at the moment too, she's part of a group called Fair, what's it called? Fair, Fairware Foundation. And they are uh, advocating for um, equal pay for people in the garment dis uh, industry. And uh, so she's part of trying to make policies so that these people are protected and uh, just human rights all around. So I can't say enough about her. I have deep respect and admiration for her. Um, and yeah, do you want to say anything, Dean? Yeah, I just want to say that um, uh, Saskia was a friend, how we met her through our, our teenage boys. And so for those of you who have gone through that experience of, you know, all the teens showing up in your house, running around, being rowdy, yelling, going into your fridge, eating your food, uh, just, you know, taking over the TV, and just being a crazy nuisance, she was one of those in that crowd. And uh, who would have thought that she would become the incredible woman, the incredible woman that, that she is today, when I just thought she was just one of these crazy teens going nuts in the house. And I was like, when are they going to leave? <laughs> anyway, uh, she's, she's a great gal. And um, wow, we, we just love her so much. So I just get to pray. Uh, God, we just uh, thank you so much for Saskia and for her husband, Cor, and um, thank you for the gift that they are to this planet, and uh, just help her words to come alive uh, in our hearing right now. Amen. Saskia, I don't think we can hear you. Good morning to everyone from the Bridge Church. Um, I am joining you via recording from Indonesia. I really wanted to join live, but uh, with the time zone, it's just almost impossible. So I am recording for you today. Um, my name is Saskia Wishart. I 
have been a part of the Bridge Church for many years. Um, I consider the Bridge my spiritual home, um, even though I haven't considered Canada my physical home in a very long time. It's actually getting towards a decade and a half, um, in case that makes anyone feel very, uh, very old or like a lot of time has passed. Um, but despite that, uh, every time I am in Canada, uh, this is the church I come to. And one of the beauties of COVID-19 and, and the lockdown measures and social distancing, despite all the things that are not great about it, uh, I do really appreciate that because these services have been online. I get to uh, often sit and watch them at some point throughout my week and feel that I am close to you and, and really be able to follow the journey of the church community. And that includes the series you've been doing on the Beatitudes. Um, I feel like I've gotten a lot out of it so far. So far, and I'm really honored that Janine asked me to to join today um, to speak on the Beatitude. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, and the reason why Janine asked me um, is that this summer I was in Lesbos on the Greek island of Lesbos working in a refugee camp. Um, maybe some of you heard a little bit about that. Um, I was there supporting an organization that does legal aid for refugees who are uh, going through the asylum process and providing them with support through that. And um, yeah, basically having had you know very close contact uh, and, and access to people who've experienced you know severe persecution, so much so that they've had to flee their home, their home country, um, sometimes their families, sometimes with their families. Uh, in order to seek safety. And so I thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about refugee, the refugee law and like what it means to be persecuted under international law because I am a lawyer more than a theologian. Um, so I thought it would be useful to maybe give a bit of an, a definition and context to what um, what is the legal framework around being a refugee and, and, and what that means to be persecuted. Um, and especially to explain, you know, why we are in the situation we are in now globally with the refugees around the world and the conditions and treatment that they're facing. Um, and then I will, will reflect just a little bit about this concept of persecution, the way I was exposed to it as a, as a young, young person in, in the evangelical Christian church and how I think that we can start to reframe it. Um, so, First of all, for the law lesson, um, under international law, a refugee is a person who has had to flee their country of origin um, because they face persecution on a set ground, such as their race, religion, nationality, uh, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Um, and it comes uh, from the 1951 Refugee Convention, which is a treaty that was developed in the aftermath of World War II and it's really important because if we think about the way that refugees are understood and defined, we have to understand where that definition comes from. And it comes from a concept of persecution that was developed out of what happened during World War II against um, the Jewish population. Uh, in particular, the fact that many people who were being targeted because of a ground that they couldn't control, such as their race or religion, um, for people during World War II, that was of course the Jewish population, but also Roma um, and many others. When they tried to flee uh, Nazi controlled 
countries and, and seek uh, asylum or refuge in another country, many were turned back and turned back to their deaths. So in the aftermath of World War II, when uh, world leaders and the atrocities of World War II came to light, uh, there was sort of a consensus in the international community that we'll never let this happen again. And that's the sort of the birthplace of the Refugee Convention, the idea that if you were being persecuted and you had to flee, that you could not be turned back. Um, so we wouldn't do the same thing again. There's a couple of issues that have maybe developed out of this. Uh, on one hand, it's a very beautiful sentiment. On the other hand, we know that we have not prevented uh, atrocities from happening. Um, and that people are still, you know, fleeing and seeking asylum and then not receiving it or, or, or are being sent back. You know, this, this remains a problem and some of that has to do with the definition and much of it is political. Um, but just to, to help give you some understanding of what it means, um, if we think of what happened in the Syrian war, actually the vast majority of people who fled the war would not be classified under international law as refugees. Um, most of them would receive refugee status in a, a humanitarian status. So based on the fact that there is a war, they received safety. Um, but people who are specifically targeted, such as the Yazidi population being targeted by ISIS, could flee and receive refugee status on the basis that they are targeted with persecution. And so it's quite a difficult, like it's quite a high barrier in the sense that even just like general widespread conflict or poverty or climate disasters, natural disasters, doesn't necessarily give people the right to receive asylum. It's a very narrow definition. And it also means that people who do um, seek asylum have to go through the process and the trauma of proving that they were uh, subjected to persecution. And, you know, having met many people who have been subjected to persecution, I can tell you it's a horrible, um, it's an inhumane thing to have to try and prove that, uh, to relive their experiences. And one of the other issues that comes up is the fact that this convention only applies for people once they cross a border. So the protection kicks in when you reach another country, a safe country. And that's why we see what's developed now, um, where many people are trying to get to a border to cross that border because that is the only way in which they can seek asylum is once they've crossed over. Um, and that's partly of what we see happening at the American-Mexico uh, border uh, and why we see so many people crossing in boats to try and get to Europe and, and risking such dangerous uh, journeys to try and reach Europe. They cannot seek asylum unless they get physically to the land. Um, and as many of you have probably seen, you know, the situation specifically on the European borders are pretty disturbing. Um, hundreds of people die every year at sea trying to cross. Um, just this last week, I think 110 people died in the Mediterranean, including a six-month-old baby. Uh, and it's clear that people take that risk because they feel that they have no alternatives and that it like has been stated so beautifully. Um, you know, that people only, uh, you know, they would only put their family on a boat on the, on the water if the water is safer than the land, it's been said. And, um, you know, this is a reality that families are facing, that people who are fleeing persecution are facing, that they, they feel trapped between, you know, different dangers, but there's hope that there could be, you know, safety on the other side in Europe or in America or wherever they are trying to reach. 
And what also has come out of the Refugee Convention is the fact that because of this like land requirement, this crossing of borders, um, this really privileges certain countries over others, uh, and in particular countries like Canada or the Netherlands and Germany, who don't have a direct land or sea border with people who are with countries or locations where people are fleeing violence. Um, so Canada gets to basically pick and choose refugees that come to its country, whereas many others that have that land border, um, you know, they just have to take everyone who is fleeing. They have to uh, allow them over and they often carry like a disproportionate way of trying to provide for, for people. Um, it's also obviously a highly political issue. Um, people, the way in which we frame, you know, conversations around refugees and asylum seekers and immigration, uh, it's pretty concerning. Um, and it's very political. We hear words like illegal, illegal migrants, even though, as I just explained, people have the legal right to seek asylum. You also hear a lot, um, you know, kind of dehumanizing language, hordes of migrants, the migrant crisis, you know, it, it makes it seem um, very, in, like, are very disconnected from the individual human lives uh, and the people who are facing, you know, persecution and violence and war uh, in their home countries. So as I said, this summer, I was in a refugee camp on Lesbos and the conditions were pretty heavy. They were uh, very disturbing. The camp um, was built originally for two and a half to 3,000 people. Um, earlier this year, it had 20,000 people in it. When I was there, there was approximately 13,000. Um, so the conditions were, were um, appalling. <laughs> there was not enough running water. There was a lack of uh, sanitation. There's a lack of safety. People had been in lockdown in the refugee camp for a long time. Uh, so there's a lot of unrest and, and frustration. And in September, as some of you might have seen or heard uh, through the news, um, actually the entire refugee camp burned to the ground and 13,000 people were displaced again. <laughs> They've already been through, you know, the horror and trauma of fleeing war and violence in their home countries and um, they lost everything. Um, they were basically trapped on the streets because of military and political reasons. Um, people went for five, six days without food and water. It was a very scary experience. It was uh, horrible for the people who, um, who had been living in the camp who then now went through this trauma again. Um, and so much of it, again, was political, like the fact that people didn't have food and water, it wasn't that there wasn't enough, it was just that the way that things were organized with police and military and, you know, there was anger and violence from local people who are tired of having refugees on their island, there's anger towards the EU, um, it was a very complicated situation, very heavy, um, and we just, again, see people just being treated like um, inhumane, and you know among that population like 36 percent were children seven out of ten were were children under 12. um so we're talking also very vulnerable people and and they were just left on the streets and i think you know to just reflect a little bit on how you know persecution had been conceptualized to me as a as a, a person growing up in North America as a white Christian, um, it was often a thing 
that I was kind of afraid of because I was exposed a lot to like narratives about North American Christians being at risk of persecution or like that, the, you know, that we would, you know, we're fighting this, this battle of trying to stand up for, for our faith and in a, you know, an environment that's hostile towards Christianity, um, which of course did not take into account the fact that as a, as a white Christian from North America, we were actually in a position of power and a position of oppression or as oppressor or not oppressed. Um, and we actually had the potential to, to persecute, not be persecuted. But many times when I, you know, originally read the Beatitude or, or heard this, uh, it really brought to mind, you know, a picture of, of um, sort of North American Christian persecution. Uh, it was very rare that I thought of, you know, an Afghan family trying to get into a boat to cross uh, the sea or a, you know, family from Honduras fleeing violence and, and, um, and, and death <laughs> and risk of, uh, to life. Um, but instead, uh, you know, we had these images or stereotypes about North America experiencing persecution. I don't know if others maybe experience that themselves, uh, especially I think it was, you know, it's been quite a driving narrative um, that's impacted a lot of, of our, I think, a lot of the political rhetoric. And I think uh, the beauty of this beatitude is that when we say blessed are those who are persecuted, I really think it's once again this, this whole thing of Jesus flipping the script of power. Um, because maybe there's an, a sort of an instinct um, or there is an instinct, I think, that when we feel at risk of persecution or when we perceive ourselves to be in a, in an, a position, um, our, our primary goal is to, to make a power grab or a power move, right? To um, try and, and put ourselves into a position where we don't feel at risk and where we have the potential actually to, um, to insulate or protect ourselves and potentially actually oppress and persecute someone else. Um, and I think that we've seen that alignment uh, within a lot of, um, you know, powerful countries that we align ourselves with empire um, because we're reacting out of the fear uh, of being without power. And with that, we, we also are not acknowledging sort of the historical and, and current privilege and power that we have. I think the beauty of the bridge this year, I really appreciated that there's been a willingness to have conversations around racial injustice and the treatment of indigenous and First Nations people and the way in which Christians and um, especially those in Canada, um, settler Christians have oppressed and persecuted, you know, the first people of Canada. Um, and that has also, I think, been repeated in many other locations when we've aligned ourselves, you know, with empire, with war, and with capital, and we've actually um, taken, you know, a stance that has, if not propped up or, or, or perpetuated persecution, has at least, you know, not, um, not, or yeah, maybe, I, yeah, I think we, we've been involved, for example, in wars that, and, and, and military and activities that actually help, um, help yeah run the kind of um, political environment that that the the world is in right now um and often as christians you know we've aligned ourselves with those power not always but often with the power um and i think that this beatitude really invites us into a position um 
a, a different spirit, not one that tries to have power over, not one that tries to um, align themselves with the oppressor in order to prevent ourselves from being oppressed, but actually acknowledges our role and realizes that the blessing or the place that we should be is amongst those who are experiencing persecution, amongst those who are um, being oppressed, because that is, you know, this, this is where the blessing is. That is where, where our savior is. And, and I love that as we go towards Christmas time, there's always this image that comes up of, of Jesus as a, as a baby, um, as a baby refugee. Um, and I've seen, I think last summer or last Christmas, there was a really beautiful drawing of like a South American family fleeing and it was Joseph, Mary, and, and, and Jesus. And actually, <laughs> under international law, Jesus fits the definition of refugee uh, perfectly. You know, he was a child, a boy under two, so a very specific group that was being targeted, a social group, but also a Jewish, so a religious persecution, um, who had to flee to Egypt in order to be safe and in order to um, escape persecution. And only through fleeing and crossing that border, you know, was Jesus able to grow up and be educated and have the life that he then went on to have that inspired us and has, you know, of course, yeah, that's the beauty, right? The beauty is that God himself would align with the refugee, with the displaced person, with the person who has to flee right from the start. Um, and I love that, that that is the picture and that is an invitation and when I was thinking a little bit more about how to reframe persecution, because as I mentioned, I was exposed to a lot of maybe toxic uh, uh, images or understandings of persecution um, in my kind of Christian upbringing. Um, I, have, um, I was reminded of a, a reframing of the Beatitudes from um, uh, Neil Douglas Close, where he actually translates the Beatitudes from Aramaic to English, and um, it really changes the meaning. And I think it also helps paint new pictures of what it means to be um, living within this concept of blessed are the persecuted. Um, so I'm going to read just a few of his translations of the Beatitudes, just from um, blessed are the peacemaker and blessed are the persecuted. Uh, and I invite you to just take a moment to hear his words to think about how these can reframe the way that you picture um, or understand persecution um, and where your role or position is in that. So he writes, um, in response to blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the children of God, uh, which Dean spoke about last week. He writes, healed are those who bear the fruit of sympathy and safety for all. They shall hasten the coming of God's new creation. Healed are those who bear the fruit of sympathy and safety for all. They shall hasten the coming of God's new creation. And then in response to blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he translates, tuned to the source are those persecuted for trying to right society's balance. Theirs is the ruling principle of the cosmos. And then in response to blessed are you when people um, insult you, persecute you, say false things against you because of me, he translates, renewal, when you are reproached and driven away by the clamor of evil on all sides for my sake. 
I'm just going back to this concept of blessed are the peacemaker and blessed are the persecutor, persecuted, sorry. Um, I see those two as so intertwined because you, when there's peace, you don't have persecution. I think we cannot totally separate them. But to be a peacemaker, if we look at this translation of the Beatitude, it's being those who bear the fruit of sympathy and safety for all in order to hasten in new creation. And I think of how so often, you know, there's fear wrapped up around those who are fleeing persecution. There's a language of fear. Um, and we're invited into a place of sympathy and creating spaces of safety, you know? The, the idea of a refugee is that they are seeking safety. That this is about bringing about a new creation. And instead of thinking just of persecution for righteousness sake, I love this idea that um, those who are persecuted for trying to right society's balance, what does that look like? Uh, writing the, the society's balance, not maybe living in fear that your um, your way of life is under threat by someone outside, but that uh, you have a role, an active role in writing society's balance. And that may bring about persecution, but that when when that does happen, you, you know that you are tuned into the source, um, that you are tuned into God's way within the world. Um, and when I was thinking about how to make it a little bit practical, I wanted to reference uh, the Global Immersion Project. Uh, it's a, a peacemaking organization. They deal with issues of racial injustice, of immigration, Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, and they speak a lot about being an active peacemaker and they have these four sort of actions around peacemaking. And I think that if we want to combat, you know, this world of persecution or, you know, the reality of persecution in the world and for those who are really facing it, um, we can do that through being active peacemakers. And I think that that is relevant, you know, on a global scale, of course, for those who have uh, access to or contact with refugees, but also for those who are the most down, down, downtrodden and the most oppressed and the most persecuted within our own societies. Uh, I know that many uh, in the bridge community care deeply for um, some of Canada's most disenfranchised people. So um, I want to invite us into these four actions of peacemaking. The first uh, is to see. Everyday peacemakers see the humanity, dignity, and image of God in everyone. And I think that when we see humanity, dignity, and image of God in everyone, um, we can ourselves not be part of oppression and persecution. Instead, we will align ourselves to protect uh, those who are at most at risk of persecution, protection of their humanity, and we will uphold their dignity and fight for that image of God in them. The second action is to contend. So the Global Emergent Project says that everyday peacemakers contend not by getting even, but getting creative in love. I love that because I think if you are 
suffering from a false persecution complex, it may really lead you down a path of wanting to get even to try and, you know, as I said, align yourself with the oppressor or with empire in order to have the power. Um, and we see cycles of oppression and persecution, you know, one group is oppressed and they seek power, they get power, and then they maybe use it as a form of oppression against another. Um, I actually think the situation in Israel-Palestine is a really you know, key example where you have people who were horrifically persecuted and oppressed, um, but who are now perpetuating oppression against uh, Palestinian people. And so instead of getting even, instead of seeking that power, really pursuing ways of being creative in our love, the third way that they speak of having action as an everyday peacemaker is to immerse. Everyday peacemakers move toward conflict with tools to heal rather than to win. I think it's very similar, you know, this idea that we want to be part of the healing. Um, we don't escape from conflict. We can't turn necessarily away from those who have experienced um, oppression or persecution. It doesn't help us to just turn away and ignore it. We move towards it, but we move towards it with a tool to heal. And then the fourth one is restore. Everyday peacemakers share tables with former enemies and celebrate the big and small ways God is restoring our broken world. And I think for those of us who hold a very strong position of um, privilege in Canadian society or European society, um, we have to recognize that for many people, we might represent a, an enemy, you know? we. Um, might represent systems that have um, persecuted or oppressed others so that when we are at the table um, there's this position of humility um, and a position of healing that we have to take um, and I think you know here they say celebrate the big and small ways God is restoring our broken world you know for, for me, even seeing the Bridge Church just being willing to have conversations around um, the history and the um, oppression of uh, Indigenous and First Nations Canadians uh, is, I think, just a small way I see some restoration happening. Also, you know, when I think of being present, you know, in, in, on Lesbos and, and in the refugee camp, there's this a legal process called family reunification where families are brought back together. So maybe one person has received asylum in Germany or in Switzerland or Sweden, and then, you know, the rest of the family, uh, children, maybe the parents or siblings can apply to be reunited. Um, and every time that there's a family reunification, it just makes me all like tearful, you know, um, because you see like people who have been separated families, like immediate families that have been separated, especially like husband and wives or children from their parents, come back together. It's such a like, like a small thing of restoration. And to imagine fleeing war, fleeing conflict, being separated from your family and having this moment where you are coming back together. I mean, this is a beauty. This is a restorative moment. This is a celebration. Um, so maybe there's other ways in which you yourself can look at the world around you and actually be able to identify and celebrate the way restoration can happen. 
So those are the four, the seeing, contending, immersing, and restoring, which are actions of everyday peacemakers. And I leave you with that. I pray that you can take these actions, this peacemaking, um, and a reframing of our understanding of persecution as a way to, uh, to bring about more healing and restoration in the world. Thank you for having me.